صلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد تب القلوب ودوائها وعافية الأبدان وشفائها ونور الأبصار وضيائها وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless the gathering and yubarik fil majlis وَمَنْ يَحْضُرُ And then those who attend and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to fulfill our needs the hidden and the apparent the known and the unknown the internal and the external and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to uh, have mercy on those who have passed away uh, one of the members of our community had a loved one last I heard passed away so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy on them Elevate their rank And accept from them inshallah Ameen So bismillah uh, Last time we finished The biography portion Of the paper So we uh, we began this paper On uh, Imam al-Dardir Imam Abu al-Barakat al-Dardir And the qualities of a true sheikh There were some really important things That we covered last time actually That if we were to kind of like rehash them, I think it would be a little bit repetitive for some people. So uh, the good news is that I probably don't remember what I already covered anyways. So I'll probably semi-cover it again. And uh, if, if there's things that come up that maybe had been covered in detail last time, uh, the recording is always there online to find, inshallah. And the paper itself you can find on the Majlis website, themajlis.us. If you, for those who are here and you want, if you want to read along, if you go to themedjlis.us and you click the link for publications, it'll take you to the blog page with publications and it's like the second post, I think. Okay? So, um, Bismillah. So, we had said in the beginning that this is a section from a book called Al-Khariratun Bahiyya. Al-Khariratun Bahiyya could be translated as the illustrious pearl. And it's written by Imam Ahmed Abu al-Barakat al-Dardir. And Imam al-Dardir was a uh, major, major scholar of the Azhar in like the, forget what we said, 18th century, basically. And um, his works became kind of like the reference point in a number of different topics, in fiqh, but also in aqidah. And the section that we have here is actually a section from a work on aqidah, in Khariratul Bahiyya. The illustrious pearl is on aqidah, what we believe, what we don't believe, why, so on and so forth. And he, we had said that he ends this section with a uh, section on tasawwuf. And one of the things that we briefly passed through last time was this idea that the word tasawwuf is not a bad word. Uh, if you hear it, you don't have to remake your wudu or anything like that. And uh, really, when we talk about tasawwuf, we talk about a dedication and commitment to a level of spiritual practice and a level of spiritual discipline and, and upbringing. And it is, uh, it has to be by definition uh, constricted by the Quran and the Sunnah, by the Quran and the way of the Prophet. And we had discussed before many times this idea of Hadith Jibreel and how when Jibreel comes to the Prophet. He asks him about Iman and Islam and Ihsan. 
and that these three questions laid the foundation for what we understand to be Muslim scholarship at large and orthodoxy in a sense. So there's the study of Iman, which is the study of theology and aqidah, and there's the study of Islam, that is the study of fiqh and law, and then there's the study of uh, Ihsan, which is the study of the internal development and spiritual development, which for most of Muslim history was called a tasawwuf. No, don't do that. I'm going to feel horrible. Don't, don't, don't do this. <laughs> Thank you. No, it's good. Alhamdulillah. Keeps you on your toes. It's okay. It'll be all right in a few minutes. A tasawwuf. So a tasawwuf. Thank you. No, no, don't stand there. Stop for a while. Okay, so how do you want me to move? You want me to move? I can't teach with you standing there blocking the sun. <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know, I'm married to her. <laughs> I don't think it's like I, the sun is there. I don't think it's going to change it if I move that way. Yeah, if you, that's perfect. Alhamdulillah. So tasawwuf, tasawwuf is just the spiritual path, spiritual path, spiritual commitment to bettering oneself internally, to really know God. And there's many, many different definitions that are given to that. One of them, uh, there's two that I like in particular. One of them is the definition of Sidi Ahmed Zarruq, rahimahullah, where he said uh, that it is Sidq tawajjuh in Allah, Sidq tawajjuh in Allah, which is to have true and honest turning to Allah. That's what the whole thing is about. So the, the path of spiritual development and rectification and so on is really to just get those other things out of the way. As, you know, there's a whole lot of things that get in the way when we're trying to be honest with Allah. Our ego gets in the way. Our, our personal desires get in the way. Our anger at other people get in the way. Grudges gets in the way. All of these internal things get between us and Allah, and Allah is right there. So it's just to turn sincerely to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The other definition that I like is the definition that's attributed to Sayyidina Shaykh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani radiallahu ta'ala anhu where he said it is a sidq ma'al-haq wa husnul khuluqi ma'al-khalq that it is to have sidq and honesty you see he has the same definition honest and true trueness with Allah the true and good character with the people so anyways we don't have to belabor it too much the important thing is that these three when they're mentioned they all inform each other they all inform each other, okay? So our practice of Ihsan is informed by Islam and Iman. And our practice of Iman is informed by our practice, our knowledge of Islam and Ihsan and so on. So, uh, and one of my favorite quotes in this regard is the quote of Imam Junaid, who's the Imam. Each, each of these fields has their Imams. In Aqidah, the Imams are uh, Abu Mansur al-Maturidi, and Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari radiallahu anhumah and you can say also Imam Ahmed himself Ahmed ibn Hanbal radiallahu ta'ala anhu Assalamu alaikum um, and then in fiqh we have the four Imams Abu Hanifa and Malik and Shafi'i and Ahmed and in Tasawwuf we have Junaid Junaid is the Imam in Tasawwuf uh, and he said Tariquna hadha muqayyidun bin kitabi wa sunnah that this path of ours is Constrained by the Quran and the Sunnah. فَمَنْ لَمْ يَسْمَعِ الْحَدِيثِ وَيُجَالِسِ الْفُقَهَاءِ وَيَأْخُذْ أَدْبَهُ مِنَ الْمُتَأَدِّبِينَ أَفْسَرَ مَنِ اتَّبَعَ 
He said that, so this path of ours is, con is controlled by the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So whoever does not sit and hear hadith, because the way that you would learn hadith, especially in the past, you sit in the gathering of hadith and you listen. You listen to the narration. They don't do that, and they don't uh, frequent the gatherings of the fuqaha, people of knowledge, the, the, the people of the understanding of the religion. Uh, and they don't take their adab, they don't take their manners, from the people who have learned manners. Then, those, the, if the person is like that, then they will corrupt the one who follows them. They will corrupt the one who follows them. It's a very important quote. Anyways, this leads us all to the section that the, is the translation. Translation is half of a line of the poem where he said, Then he said, follow. In the end of the poem, he gives ten things. These are the ten things you should do to improve your relationship with Allah. Right? You should have patience, and you should have gratitude, and you should have fear and hope, and you should have, you know, these things that we know. You have uh, some sort of uh, self-accountability. And one of the things that he mentions is this. Follow the path of the upright scholars. So I'm going to read from it, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Qalil musannifu rahimahullahu ta'ala wa nafanullahu wiyahu bi'ulumi fiddarin. Ameen. The fifth is to follow a shaykh who knows God and has traveled the path of the people of God on the hand of a similar shaykh, leading all the way back to the messenger, God extol him and grant him perfect peace. The one who does not keep the company of a shaykh who can guide him or her on the path to God and suffices himself with what he has from worship and knowledge has exposed himself to the deceptions of shaitan. For this reason it is said, the one who does not have a sheikh, shaitan is his sheikh. This paragraph has a lot to say. I wonder if we'll ever finish this paper. It's like two pages long. Um, first and foremost, where do we get our religion from? Where do we get our religion from? We have to ask ourselves this question. One answer to that question would be we get our religion from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. It's true, we get our religion from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. But the Qur'an and the Sunnah have to be understood. And probably we can think of times in our lives when people have taken some sort of understanding of the Qur'an or the Sunnah and made it into something really ugly. The closest example for that in the modern Muslim experience is terrorism. Right? Like in terrorism, someone takes something from the Qur'an, they take something that they believe to be from the Sunnah, they put it in some particular place, and then they think this is what I'm supposed to do, and they do it. On the other side of it is just a complete free-for-all. Like, here's this hadith of the Prophet, I don't like it. Here's this verse from the Qur'an, it must be historical. And it's like two sides of interpretation that just goes kind of all over the place. The way of the Muslims, from the time of the Prophet to today, was very clear. Right? The way is that there are people who know more, and there are people who know less. And the people who knew more, after the death of the Prophet they attempted to formalize some sort of methodology for dealing with understanding the religion. It wasn't like a, it's not like a matter of what they feel. They're, the, the imams, for example, they're taking their knowledge from the companions and the tabi'een, the students of the companions. And they're taking all of that knowledge and they're trying to understand it and come up with the principles that can be derived from the Qur'an and the sunnah and then apply those to all kinds of situations. That's really what they're trying to do. And their books often uh, show that, if not directly, indirectly. 
And then that knowledge is passed from generation to generation. Sometimes we think like, oh, the Sahaba, all of them must have been scholars. They say that the scholars from the Sahaba weren't more than 20. Imagine, like you're, you're talking about thousands and thousands of Sahaba, and there weren't more than 20, maybe some estimates go up to like 40 or something. But in the end, you're talking about, for all intents and purposes, a small group of people. And that group of people passes their knowledge, that group of people passes their knowledge, so on and so forth. After the beginning period, you can go to the, the class we have on Islamic law for this too. Uh, after the initial period of the companions and the students of the companions, you get roughly to the time of the imams. Once you get to the time of the imams, uh, this is a, a noble and a good effort. May Allah reward you. Um, okay, just keep going. Don't worry about you. Um, the sun, is, it's going to dip under the building. Um, so once, once we get to them, you get to the imams. Then the imams have their students, and their students codify their knowledge. And then more or less, once you get to the period of the four imams, Within, mashallah. <laughs> thank you, it helped actually. Yeah, it's, it's good. Alhamdulillah, thank you. Uh, I feel so spoiled. Like, I can't walk really, so I came and like everyone set up everything. I couldn't help them. And now I'm sitting here and like someone put an umbrella up for me. It's like, inshallah, the earth doesn't swallow me before this lesson ends. So they passed it from the time, roughly, probably within like a hundred years after the four imams, pretty much everything was on the four madhabs. If you're talking about Sunni Islam, most everything was on the four madhabs. There's some exceptions here and there, but four madhabs are what stayed all the way up to today. So why I'm saying this is because I want to, like, let me share, like, personally, and my journey to try to understand this religion, there have been a lot of things that I've come across or that I've felt maybe some sort of like discomfort towards. Okay, so like this statement he says right here at the end, the one who does not have a sheikh, shaitan is his sheikh. That statement, when I first heard that statement, like maybe 10 years ago, I, like my, <laughs> let's just say that I had a very negative response. But the thing is, is that when you start reading the tradition, you see it over and over again. And you see it over and over again in different places from different people and different time periods. And you're like, well, even if it doesn't feel right to me, like maybe there's something to this. Like if all these people, maybe there's something to it. So just leave that on the side a little bit. Uh, so he says that this, this true sheikh, again, when he's talking about the sheikh here, he's talking about the sheikh of Ihsan. Not the sheikh of Iman or the sheikh of Islam, but the sheikh of Ihsan. He's saying the Shaykh of Ihsan has to be someone who took that from someone, who took that from someone all the way back to the Prophet Otherwise they cannot fulfill that role. Like you cannot, this is not uh, a knowledge that you just get yourself. This is generally true for all of the areas of Islamic studies, but it's really true here. Uh, generally speaking, the thrust of Islamic studies is we don't really like when people are self-taught. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean that you don't learn yourself. It just means that you have to have someone who's helping you. Right? You go to college. Like, I mean, it's funny because when we hear this in Islam, we have this like reaction to it. When you think about anything in life, it's true. 
Like any field that you go through, if you're going to be serious about the thing that you're studying, you have teachers, you have mentors, you have people you look up to, you have people who are more senior. There's a point in the beginning where you really have to be fed a lot and then you learn a little bit more and you have more independence and you can come up with different ideas and analyze things and so on. And like there's a progression to the way that that develops, right? It's not that you're like, you don't study by yourself ever. It's just that certain foundations have to be there and then an acknowledgement of those who are senior to you always has to be there, okay? So it doesn't matter, like I'm, I'm getting closer to 40, like in my late 30s, spent a lot of time studying this religion if I don't have people who are more senior to me that I look up to and I say these people are senior to me, they have more knowledge than me, I'll defer to them. I might not always agree with them, but at least we can have a conversation and they're, you know, like that's, a, that's a scary thing when people don't have that. <clears throat> so he's saying that they take it from someone who took it from someone back to the Prophet them. And if they don't have that, they don't have this teacher, then they have exposed themselves to shaitan. And... Um, the reality is that, you know, there's quotes that go around this, like this conversation, there is a, uh, it's on virtual mosque from a long time ago. And Sheikh Abdul Fatah Abu Ghadda mentions it in one of his books, I can't remember which one, towards the beginning. It might be, um, The Value of Time, I can't remember. But basically there was a murasala, there was like a correspondence, that someone sent a letter to some big sheikh and they asked him, like, there's a sheikh, and this is what we talked about last time. There's the sheikh of Talim and there's the sheikh of Tarbiyah. Does everyone have to have a sheikh of Tarbiyah? And so the sheikh responded, I forget who it was right now. I feel like it was, um, um, I don't want to mess up his name. The one that has a commentary in the Hikam, Rundi. Anyways, uh, he said, Everyone has to have a sheikh of Talim. Okay, sheikh of Talim is a sheikh of straight teaching. Everyone has to have a sheikh of Talim, someone who teaches you the religion. And then he said, but not everyone has to have a sheikh of Tarbiyah. This was his opinion. And he said basically that if someone has really good control over themselves, and they know how to control themselves, they know how to control their nafs, their lower self, so on and so forth, then maybe they can get by with the sheikh of Talim. They don't need the sheikh of Tarbiyah. So of course, like at some points in our life, we're like, alhamdulillah, I have good control over my nafs. I, you know, I have like, I can, I can handle this myself and I'll just go with the Sheikh of Talim. And that's a personal decision. People can make that decision. That's totally fine. But the reality is that it may be that there's some level of deception or delusion in that. Um, even oftentimes we, for example, in our religiosity, quote unquote, we often um, confuse, and I've made this point before in the Majlis, we confuse self-discipline with Ihsan. Uh, so for example, like I have, and, and this is more of an issue of how a person's raised and probably their temperament and stuff like that. Some people are raised in a way that they're highly disciplined. Some people are raised in a way that they're not. So like just because you can pray all the prayers on time and do all the things you put on your checklist doesn't mean you're like necessarily closer to Allah because there's internal realities to all of that that maybe are not being fulfilled. And this is where the issue comes in, right? So it's not just about discipline. It's about like some sort of light that the person has in themselves that is that shines on the world. 
And this is, again, this is a concept. This is not like some sort of new weirdo innovation thing like we're talking about sitting in the medjulis on green carpets, drinking tea in Southern California. Like this is Imam al-Shafi'i went to Imam Malik and Imam Malik looked at him and he said, Allah has put a light in your heart, so do not extinguish it with the sin, with the darkness of sin. This is what he told him. Like Malik saw him. These people were people who could see. So he saw him and he said, Inna Allah qad qadafa fi qalbika nuran. So don't don't extinguish. Allah put something in your heart. Don't extinguish it. Okay. So sometimes that's that's a different thing. To ha- to have this light is a different thing. This is what he's getting at here. Generally speaking, one who does not ha- does not travel to God on the hand of a sheikh who knows him will not be able to attain the stations of proximity to God, even if his worship is equivalent to that of all of the jinn and humans. So. Now, part of why we did the biography, many of, you, many of you missed the biography. Part of why we did the biography was that we need to understand who Imam al-Dardir is. Like he is literally the pinnacle of everything that led up to him for Muslim, Sunni Muslim scholarship. So it's not like he's... And he's saying this as the key figure of the key institution of learning of all of Sunni Islam, which is al-Azhar, especially in that time, especially in his time. So like... You have to position this properly. What is he saying? He's saying that generally speaking, if the person doesn't have someone to help them in that journey, they're not going to make it. Does that mean that nobody will make it? No, people will make it. You'll find like regular Muslims who, mashallah, they really have something special in their relationship with Allah. And they never had like a shaykh or a spiritual teacher or anything like that. They just were like, this is the sunnah, I'm going to follow the sunnah, I love Allah, I love the Prophet and it came for them. That you will find that. Just like you will find people who are really gifted basketball players without ever having someone to train them or coach them. But if you have someone who trains and coaches, people who would have never been good at all, <laughs> they never would have been able to compete, they never would have been able to play like at a high level, they might be able to play, they, they'll be able to compete. When they wouldn't have been able to do that before, right? So it's not that, like this is not a 100% thing. Like if you don't, you know, without this, no one will ever be good. No, you can be good. What's important then is to ask ourselves, what are the qualities of this person? Okay, and this is the, pur- this is the purpose of the translation. What are the qualities of this person? The signs of such a sheikh are, number one, generosity. Number two, there's eight, I'll read the whole paragraph. Number one, generosity. Number two, good character. Number three, concern for the creation of God. Number four, not being engrossed in acquiring worldly things. Number five, not making claims, even speaking with the terminology of the people of spirituality, unless there is a specific need for doing that. It's a really interesting point we'll come back to. Number six, not complaining about constriction in worldly affairs or from people not giving them attention. Number seven, to see upon him or her the signs of humility, brokenness, and loving to be hidden from the people. Number eight, to see the signs of barakah, uh, blessing, and rectitude on his followers or her followers. This could be a woman or a man. This is not uh, like prophethood according to the majority position. So what are the qualities? Number one, generosity. Number one is generosity. We've emphasized over and over and over again at the Majlis the idea of generosity. Generosity is one of the most important Hospitality, generosity is one of the most important and fundamental qualities of our religion. I remember when I was in college, you know, 
we had, I used to live with a bunch of brothers, most of whom were activists and stuff. We were like really serious about everything. And one of the, one brother came to visit and nobody offered him anything. And afterwards, you know, we were talking and he's like, I'm never going to visit these brothers again. And I was like, why? He's like, because I came and they didn't offer me anything. They didn't even offer me like a glass of water, anything to eat. And he's like, you can do, basically he was saying, is like, you could do all this activism stuff if you want, but you're missing something. Like, this is, this is our religion. And that's why the Prophet said it. And then, that they should be generous to their neighbor, they should be generous to their guest. If they're not, that's, that's, it's not like a side issue. It's not like, oh, they're a good believer, they pray all their prayers, but they just, they don't give, they're not generous. No. Like, if they're not generous, there's a problem. And that's why you would see that. Like, we would see that all through, you know, all through Muslim history. This is like one of the things we still have, you know. Like, you go places, people will give you the shirt off their back. And people are, like, amazed by it sometimes. They're like, no, I, j I was just trying to say that your hat is nice. I didn't mean that you have to give it to me, <laughs> right? But, like, you tell them, oh, this is so, so I like what you're doing. That they give it to you, right? So, like, this is, generosity is extremely important. If you find a sheikh who's not generous, uh, be very wary of the sheikh. Sheikh of Tarbiya and also a sheikh of Talim. If they're not generous, you have to be very wary. Uh, it's, it's a major issue. One of the things that we wanted to model the majlis after was places in Egypt, they're called Madiafa. Madiafa. Madiafa to Sheikh Ismail Sadiq al-Adwi. Madiafa to Sheikh so-and-so. It's, it's the idea is that the people come to learn and when they come to learn, they get something. Like someone will give them some tea. It's harder to do in America. We have, we're, in America, you know, we, we have a lot of rules for everything. And then we get like really particular about them. So it makes it harder to do stuff. But like, for example, when you would go to the, the Madhyafa, there was one guy he would serve. One guy, that was his job. One sheikh comes and teaches, there's like 50 people, he serves all of them. Next class, 50 people, he serves all of them. He just come out with a huge platter, like the size of this umbrella come out with the platter filled with cups of tea and give to every single person who's sitting there. And then he would come out with like little biscuits or something, like a little biscuit or something and give them something to eat, right? And the idea is like, you're going to come, you're going to get something. And some of the students, subhanAllah, like I saw with my own eyes, some of the students, you felt like and you knew this is the only food this person's eating today. Because he'd get like the cup and drink it like very intentionally and fast the same time. And then he'd be like, oh, this isn't, like, can I have another one? And they give him another one and he'd drink it. He'd ask for like two things. But they're not getting anything else, subhanAllah. So this is number one, generosity. Number two is good character. Number two is good character. May Allah help us, you know. May Allah help us. May Allah help us. What are the first two things that he put? Look, did you see, like, here, in all of these, did you see anything that said, like, he's memorized a bunch of Qur'an, he's memorized a bunch of hadith, he knows all the rulings of the fiqh. You can see that anywhere, right? Because this is not what you're taking from this person. Right? What you're taking from this person is how to be. So the first thing is they better be generous. Second thing is they have to have good character. And that's, you know, its own topic. Number three, they have to have a concern for the creation of God. Concern for the creation of God. So they have to care about the people, you know. 
It's not like I don't care about them. I'm just detached from them. I don't, you know, I don't, whatever happens to them, I don't care, you know. There has to be like an actual concern for people. This is part of the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ and what you see from them. And this is actually like from these people, you feel from them what the Prophet ﷺ said, which is that you don't believe until you love for your brother what you love for yourself or your sister what you love for yourself. And these people you see from them sometimes you feel like they love you more than you love yourself. And that's why they're able to help people. Right? They're not able to help people because they're like, you, you did this wrong and you did that wrong and fix this and fix that and so on and so forth. They look at the person, they see everything that's good in the person. And they know how to interact with them such that all of that good can be grown and that good can be built upon. So that's number three. Number four is not being engrossed in acquiring worldly things. Not being engrossed in acquiring worldly things. This is a very important principle, but we have to be careful when we judge based on it. The reason is because someone can make a lot of money and not be engrossed with it. Okay, this can be number one. Number two, someone can make a lot of money or have a lot of money and they actually didn't do it. Like maybe they inherited it, maybe their family was wealthy, maybe they, their family had a business that was very successful, they took over that business. It wasn't really like... They weren't like, you know, taking advantage of people and oppressing them in order to make a bunch of money. Maybe they just had money. So the issue is not necessarily that they have money. The issue is what is the person's perspective towards it? Money and things. Not just money, but things too. Are they like really dependent upon things? Are they really in need of a lot of things? Are they really um, like they get upset when, you know, the cookie is not the right cookie or the latte is not perfect or like, you know. Like if you bring them the drink and it's not the right drink, do they get upset? They're like, oh, you brought me the wrong drink. They're probably, you know, like you were trying to do something nice for them. Yeah, it might be an issue, you know. Uh, so they're not engrossed in acquiring worldly things. Abu Hanifa, for example, Abu Hanifa was known that for decades he prayed Fajr with the same wudu of Isha. You have to think about it for a second. Decades. Prayed Fajr with the same wudu of Isha. This is narrated from multiple sources. It means he stayed up the whole night in worship. Right? He was very, very wealthy. Abu Hanifa was very, very wealthy. His family had a business selling cloth and things. But he had a very particular way of doing business. Like someone would come to him, they ask him, how much is this? He'd say such and such. They'd say, how about you give it to me for this? He'd say, no, it's such and such. Like, whatever price I told you, that's the price. There's no negotiation, no bargaining, anything like, I gave you a fair price, you take it, you leave it. If there was like things that were wrong with the product, he tell people. He's very honest in the way that he did business. Okay, so not being engrossed with worldly things. Being engrossed with acquiring worldly things, by the way, as a general point outside of the sheikh. In a sheikh, it's akbah. Like for a sheikh to be like that is really disgusting. But for even for like regular Muslims, being engrossed in worldly things is very debilitating. It really ruins our lives. Like the more, the more things that we have that we don't need, the less we care about any of them. The less they mean. And then now it's this thing goes and that thing goes and it just becomes, uh, you know, the story of stuff. You can look it up. Yeah. Do you often tell the opposite of that when people are like, nope, I don't want to do this at all. Like I, because of that idea when people like convert to Islam, they're like, no, 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 we can't have anything good. I don't want to make money. I don't want to feed my family. I don't want to do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, this is the thing is that, first of all, the Sharia has to be applied. This is why I said, whenever we talk about Ihsan, we have to talk about Islam. We have to talk about both. I was like that. I was very extreme. I ruined my wife's life for many years. Like, we, we, we lived like, we lived in Egypt. We never went anywhere. You know, we never went anywhere. Like, we never, we went to Alexandria twice and both, twice I think, maybe three times. And every time we went, it's a running joke. Every time we went, I ruined the trip. We go for like two days. It was too much for me. Like, no, we have to be studying. And, like, there's multiple intentions we can have for things. Like, for example, I might not want a lot of things, but that doesn't mean that I don't work to provide things for my family. I have a Sharia responsibility to provide things for my family. Not necessarily like crazy things, but something. And it's okay to take breaks every now and then. It's okay. And this is, again, this is why some of these things are important. Like, when you have a good teacher, they'll put it in the right place for you. Like, I don't know how to say this. Like, we've, how do I say this properly? Like, we've had spiritual teachers who have been like, yeah, maybe you should watch a little bit of Netflix. Because, like, you just need a break. Like, you just need to relax, watch a little bit of Netflix, and take it easy, you know? Because, like, this is the proper way to develop is step by step. If we push too hard, then we end up breaking things. And this is part of the journey. Um, but again, here we're talking about uh, the sheikh. So you might look at the sheikh and be like, oh, the sheikh has a house. Of course the sheikh has a house. The sheikh has a family and children and like, it's, no, it's not an issue for the sheikh to have a house. It's not an issue for the sheikh to get paid a living wage. It's not an issue for the sheikh to be able to afford their family to live at a low income level in the, in the county that they live in. Like, we're not talking about... It's an issue if the sheikh is like, yeah, I need half a million dollars to do my work. Then like, yeah, maybe there's an issue. But... And there's a lot of gradation between those two. We don't want to go off too much in it. Number six. No, number five. Not making claims, even speaking with the terminology of the people of spirituality, unless there's a specific need for doing that. I don't think we're going to get past this point. This is a really interesting point. It's kind of like multifaceted. In the sense that it gives... The, what he says in the beginning is the point. What he says after that is one explanation of that point. Okay, so what is the actual fifth point? The actual fifth point is making claims. Making claims. So the person says, I did this, and I did that, and oh, I'll never do this, and can you believe such and such of this? I would never do that. And da, 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 like, these are all claims. Even, even in, um, in a lot of like what we've done in the Majlis, we've tried to be sensitive to this, but sometimes we make mistakes. So... Like oftentimes we won't say that we are something, we'll say that we're trying to be something. Right? Because if we were to say like, we're doing this, that's a claim. And now you have to be able to back that claim up. Like, are you actually doing that thing? Maybe not. Maybe you're just trying to do it. Okay, so, so the issue is that they don't make claims. Someone's like, yeah, I'm a wali Allah. I'm like, pleasure to meet you. Assalamu alaikum. You know, they <laughs> said, uh, I'm, I'm the greatest sheikh in this area. Like, I'm the most... Now, sometimes they might say something that's actually tangible. So, for example, maybe you have, like, five imams in a region, and one of them has a PhD, and the rest of them are bachelor's graduates. And the person says, you know, like, I didn't want to say this, but technically speaking, like, 
I do have a lot more training than these people, you know? That's not really a claim as much as like, I'm great, I'm this, I'm that. I stay up all night and I pray. When I make dua, my dua is answered. These kind of things are claims, right? Now, some things are also claims. Like, maybe there's like a clothing. Let's say, for example, maybe there's a clothing that's associated with people of knowledge. And the person actually doesn't have much knowledge. And they put that on. And they kind of sit like they're in charge. They sit like they can ask. This is a claim. Maybe they didn't say anything, but it's a claim. Okay? So what does he say afterwards? He said, even speaking with the terminology of the people of spirituality, unless there is a specific need for doing that. And one of the things you find when you start to read the books of spirituality is there are terminology. There is terminology. Like every field of study, there's terminology. Like there's... I would use it, but then I'd be doing this, right? So there's all kinds of there's all kinds of words like that you would use in this discussion. So and it's very common in, in modern American culture where people get into spirituality and they like do all this big spiritual talk and they use all the right words and they're like, oh, they must be so knowledgeable about spirituality. No, actually, they might not be. They just learned all the right words, and learning all the right words doesn't mean that you actually did anything. Right? So he's, the actual sheikh is not going to make claims, and a type of claim is to speak in matters of spirituality. They're not really like actually something that the person should be speaking about, or that they they have that you know, they just won't do that. It'll be very subtle. Number six, not complaining about constriction in worldly affairs or from people not giving them attention. I think that's pretty clear. Um, so they're not like basically, their their mo is not getting more followers. It's not what they're there for. So they're not like, oh my God, I can't believe my page this week it had fewer likes than the week before and we didn't like, you know, get as many click-throughs and whatever the words are. And uh, what are those other words that show up on that screen? Whatever, like all those things. That's not what they're doing, right? They're there for a very particular purpose is to teach people, to help people, serve people, so on. Number seven is to see upon him or her the signs of humility, brokenness, and loving to be hidden from the people. So humility is pretty clear, right? Like they're not trying to be in charge. They're not trying to control everything. Um, you can say things to them. You can ask them questions. You know, something we say all the time, like, if you have questions, ask questions. It's not like if you feel like uh, something wasn't right, you should ask. Be like, why did you do this? Why did you? In a polite way. This is our problem. Sometimes as a people, like when we disagree with something, we really... What did uh, Dr. King say? We haven't learned to disagree without being violently disagreeable. This is, you know, it's like, just if, if something you have a question to ask, ask the question. Without attacking the person, without making assumptions, without... Just ask the question. And there can be a conversation, and there can be... Maybe we agree, maybe we don't agree. Like, uh, a community is not one person. Right? As we always say, the community is not one person. The community isn't the person who's sitting on the chair. The community is all the people who are there. And sometimes as a community, we need to like come to a mutual understanding on certain things. We need to talk about things, we need to discuss them, so on. That's humility. Brokenness. Brokenness, again, in our modern context, sometimes it's misunderstood. It doesn't mean that the person's like actually broken. It means that they have... Uh, uh, yeah, maybe like a down-to-earthness. They're they're munkesir, but they're not maksur. Like they're there's a yeah, it's just 
brokenness that doesn't mean broken. Okay. And then, and loving to be hidden from the people. Loving to be hidden from the people. And this also will always be the case. Because the, they care more about Allah than they care about being known. And like it's not, oh, you know, put me here, put me there. So, you know, I have to be the first one to speak or the last one to speak. Or I'm just come and do whatever I need to do. Allah wanted me to put me in a position to do this thing. I'll do this thing. Allah put me in a position to do this thing. I'll do that thing. But it's not, they, they don't mind being hidden from the people. Um, and this is an important point because it goes very contrary to pretty much all of our culture as it stands currently. All of our culture as it stands currently is people want to be in the front all the time. They want to be recognized all the time. And, you know, there's, there's a level of that that's normal and there's a level of that that's diseased. So, you know, uh, Allah help us. Sense of fragility, perhaps. Perhaps chatting people. And number eight, to see the signs of barakah and rectitude on the person's followers, which is an interesting point. Again, we have to be a little bit careful with this because some people will say that they're a student of Sheikh so-and-so or whatever, and they're just really not, like in a serious way. Like they're, they're a student of the person, but they're like a student of the person in the sense that they love them and they respect them, but not in the sense that they really listen to what they say and try to implement it and act upon it in their lives and so on and so forth. But if we see people who are like, yeah, this person is a serious student of such and such, then that's, you know, we, we would hope to see some sort of benefit on the, stu on the uh, students of the teacher. All right. Bismillah. Maybe before I continue, are there any questions or anything on all of this? There's a lot here. Yes, Faisal. Self-appointed imams. Well, I mean, as a general, as a, as a general reality, is that usually boards decide who gives khutbah, unless there's a permanent imam. Then the permanent imam would be the one who decides who gives khutbah. Usually. So first and foremost, usually it's a board of volunteers who are trying to do their best to try to help the community and they have whatever they have in front of them. Usually, my opinion is, why do we have a lot of uninformed people giving khutbahs? Because we don't have much else. Like, you don't have A, so you go to B. You don't have B, so you go to C. You don't have C, so you go to D. You don't have D, so you go to E. You don't have E, so you go to F. So we end up with people giving khutbahs who are like RSTUVWXYZ, you know? <laughs> but there's a level of blame upon us for that. And this is something that I think we should think about as a community. Like, there's a level of blame upon us for that. Because we as a community also, we prefer to just listen to motivational lectures rather than to learn. Like, if you're in a community for five years, six years, seven years, eight years, and you've actually been learning, you should be able to give a khutbah. And you should be able to say something sensible. Not some sort of like random nonsense that makes everyone regret that they have to pray. Like that's, that's, a mis that's, that's a big problem. And when people are actually qualified, then they should be speaking. Um, but hopefully, you know, as, and, and this is the thing, like why a lot of what we do in the majlis is really boring, right? 
like a lot of our instruction, is actually really boring. That's intentional. I want you to understand that. Like, when I was in college, in the few years after college, I used to like speaking. I used to like, like giving lectures and like, look how Malcolm used to say this thing and like, you can say it this way and say it that way and think about like all of the elements of public speaking and stuff. And at some point, I was like, no. I don't care for any of that anymore because most of that is just used to manipulate people. It has its context. There are places where it's necessary. But the vast majority of it is just manipulating people's feelings and then no one actually learns anything. So why do we sit here and teach in a really boring way and we always have a text in front of us? Because we want you to learn the text. We want you to learn where it fits in the rest of the library. We want you to learn who wrote the text, how that person fits in the rest of the library, how that fits into the entirety of the body of Islamic education so that you can take one step after the next and grow. So that eventually like a time comes when the youth program needs someone to teach in the youth program. And we can say, so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so, you've been attending classes for like two years, you should be teaching. You should give back a little bit, right? Five years pass, six years pass, seven years pass. You can give khutbah. Like all these high schools have no one giving khutbah. All these community colleges, like half of the MSAs have struggling to find someone to give khutbah. Why? Because, because we ourselves aren't committed enough to actually learn our religion. We just want something to make us feel good. That's going to go away. It's okay. Like We do need that sometimes. But it's going to go away. And we should actually learn step by step. Because the curriculum is not like a new thing. It's known. You study this first, then you study this, then you study this. And these are the areas. So we take them piece by piece. So that's my thoughts, Faisal. Yeah. Or uncle or... Okay. Alhamdulillah. Very excellent. Talk. You know what brother is talking about? What I'm going to ask you or request you, what do I need to do? You realize I can take a bath, I clean outside very well every day. What do I need to do to do all this insert or incorporate what you are talking inside me? so that I can follow, I can leave at home. What do we need to do? Is this enough? Or, Sheikh, you mentioned, what other things do you think in general, as a public, I need to do? So the question is, um, what things do I need to do internally in order to do these things? Like, what do I, what do I need to do? Um... There's long answers and there's short answers, you know. Um, but one of the things that's that's really, I think, very big is to love people and and to forgive people and to ask Allah for their forgiveness and to not look down on people, to not um, to just really be selfless with the people. And there's a lot of stuff that we hold in our hearts towards other people. And the more that we can get rid of those things, the better our situation will be in that regard. Another major thing that you can focus on that works wonders is shukr. If you want like an immediate, easy thing that works wonders, shukr. Just to be grateful. And anytime we find ourselves being like getting upset or getting frustrated or whatever, we just try to practice that gratitude. 
Because we're going to find it. And like, I can't just sit here and say, I want to be a grateful person. And then all of a sudden, mashallah, I'm never, I never say anything ungrateful again. Or feel anything ungrateful again. But we have to practice it. So if I say like, maybe like, uh, I don't know what's an, I don't know what's a good example. But there's like almost anything we deal with, we can take a tone of gratitude with it. So my ankle hurts, I can barely walk. Alhamdulillah, I have arms and I have I have legs in the first place. I have an ankle. My other foot is working fine. I have like I can come and sit in the majlis and two people from the community who are doctors will come and look at my ankle like. This is a huge blessing. This is a huge blessing. So like, yeah, my ankle hurts, but Alhamdulillah, my ankle hurts. Um, I wasn't able to like study as much as I wanted to study. But Alhamdulillah, I got to do something. And hopefully it's beneficial to some people. Um, you know, sometimes my kids make me crazy. But Alhamdulillah, kids are a huge blessing. And they're, they're healthy. And they're largely polite. And alhamdulillah, like that's, what are you going to say? All you can say is alhamdulillah. And if we really like start to think about it, there's just so much alhamdulillah. And so a lot of other things, there's a lot of like negative things we can have internally that will take us down. And shukr in and of itself is can combat almost all of those things. Um, even if you have someone who's like your enemy, like if you're really committed to trying to figure it out You can figure out a way to be grateful Imam Ghazali he says That one of the ways to know the deficiencies of yourself Is to look at what your enemies say about you Because they're going to do anything they can To find anything that's wrong with you So then you look at that and be like Alhamdulillah that I have this enemy They helped me to realize that Actually I do have like a little bit of arrogance That gets out of hand sometimes And then I have to rein it in I wouldn't have realized it had they not Called me out on it, you know. So, like, alhamdulillah, we have the enemy. Uh, alhamdulillah, there's resistance. Without resistance, there's weakness. So, like, there's so many, so many possibilities. Subhanallah. Oh, um, I just had a comment when you were talking about generosity. So, last year, before the pandemic, um, I went to Spain with Sheikh Yasser Qadi. And when I came back, you know, there are a lot of Yasser Qadi fans, and among friends and family, they were like, what was he like? And I told them one observable trait that I really noticed about him was he was, he was very generous. Mm. And like, you go and buy pastry for 40 something bucks without, you know, like, like we didn't expect him to just give it to us. And so that, and when you said, when you talked about generosity, that kind of clicked. I was like, he's so generous. And they're like, generous? He's knowledgeable. He's knowledgeable, but I love his generosity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah because the character is what counts. I mean, Character is what counts. When you look at the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was exceptional in his character. That's what that's what made him who he was, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it made him really unique, really amazing uh, in that regard. So, you know, this character thing, I think we don't put enough emphasis on it as a community. You know, people are like, how can I be more committed? How can I be good to your parents? Like, be good to your neighbors. Actually, take care of people. Like it, that's a huge act of uh, of of Islam. It's a huge act of Islam. Okay, so yes. I have a quick question. So 
In regards to being a student of someone, not necessarily specific to like Tani, Makaria, either one of those. Um, so I would think that if you call yourself a student of someone, it's a sign of respect in the sense that I'm not at the same level as this person, they're superior to me, they have my knowledge. Um, but I've noticed, I've noticed that people of knowledge particularly are very specific when in calling themselves a student of someone. Um, and they often say like, oh, I'm a student of this person, but then they'll quickly correct themselves and be like, um, you know, I'm not even worthy of being a student of this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you mind like, commenting on that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, if anyone didn't hear what Tanini said, she was saying that she traveled before on a trip with Sheikh Yasser Qadi, and one of the things, but afterwards people were asking her like, what stood out to you from Sheikh Yasser Qadi, from like the trip and the interactions and stuff? And she said the thing that stood out was his generosity. That he would buy a bunch of food, give it to people, take care of them, so on and so forth. So in case you missed that. Rabia's question. Um, so roughly what she was saying is that when you consider yourself a student of someone else, you do that kind of out of respect, right? Like you respect them, you consider yourself their student. Don't worry, we'll pray Maghrib. Um, but she's noticed that some people of knowledge, when they refer to their teachers, they might say, like, I'm a student of so-and-so, but then they'll correct themselves and they'll say, well, I'm not even worthy of being their student, such and such. Um, you know, I, I think that um, there's a lot of subtleties around this. And one of the subtleties to it is this issue of making claims. So if I say that I'm a student of so-and-so, at some level, I'm a reflection of that person. So I'm making a claim about myself, and I'm also, that could reflect on that person, and maybe I don't feel that I'm at a level that I could do that. Uh, The other thing with this is that sometimes there's a level of borderline deception in this, that people will say, I'm a student of so-and-so, and and they're not really. Like really, they haven't. Uh, they haven't spent that much time studying with them. Like I would feel comfortable to say that I was a student of someone if I spent a lot of time with them. Like you know, I went to their classes. We had a lot of conversations. There's back and forth. There was questions. I really understood. Like how does this person think about stuff? How do they answer questions? How do they deal with situations? Um, like I've really taken something from them. And. Then I would feel like, okay, I can say that I'm like a student of this person. Usually you won't hear me say that because I don't really know that I can say that about anyone in a way that I would feel like really, like I can really say that. I can say that I've, I've, I've studied with a number of people, studied with so-and-so, and sometimes I might even say, like, I like to consider myself a student of so-and-so. But I don't know if, if they consider me their student or not, you know? <laughs> they might be like, I don't know, I, we don't need that reflection yet. Um, you talk a little bit too much, you say things you shouldn't say, you know what I mean? But I think that, like, in the end, you know, we can nitpick on all these things and go back to subtleties and all this kind of stuff. In the end, it goes back to your intention. If you're saying you're a student of someone because you respect them and you appreciate them and you feel like you've benefited from them, then you're their student. You know, you're not, as long as you're not saying that you're their student in the sense of like, I'm such and such a student, so now I deserve to teach. You know, that's, that's different. Then you, then again, that's a claim. You should have some sort of backing for that claim, you know. Um, so those are just some thoughts. That helps a little bit. Should we break for Maghrib?
سبحانكم بحمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك والعصر إن الإنسان لا في خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر. We make the dua that at the end of this paper, Sheikh Muslim mentions, which is اللهم دلني ودلنا على من يدلنا عليك وهدينا إلى من يهدينا إليك. O Allah, show us those who will show you. And guide us to those who will guide us to you. Allahumma amin. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammad wa alayhi wa sallam. Let's pray Maghrib rather quickly, inshallah. Qibla is that way. And of course, if you want to hang out afterwards, talk about things, we can.